wars come and go wars start and then we sort of are interested and then we follow we follow we follow and then it just drags out and then we become exhausted and we stop following with great detail but the lives of the people in the war does not move on in any way in the same way our lives move on the war becomes a part of their reality their lived existence um, people who just the other day was a doctor a lawyer um, a security worker is now no longer that they're either living in fear of violence or have to take up arms themselves in protection of uh, their country in defense of their country and you know it is important that we perhaps sometimes slow down and not speak about the headline figures and the big meetings that take place and really just for a moment pause on the human stories of war add human texture to the names and faces of the people who we often render as just mere numbers as statistics as just mere inhabitants of a war-ridden town somewhere in a war-torn country or in a country in the middle of war the ukraine is no exception to that and Deborah Petter, uh, who is a CBS foreign correspondent, has been, I, I, before we came on, I said she's been embedded in um, the Ukraine. And she corrected me. She's not been embedded. There's a difference between reporting in, on war in a war-torn country or a country at war versus being embedded within that country who is in the middle of a war. Uh, apparently, it's a really important distinction. Uh, Deborah did explain to me what the distinction is, and it's an important one. Deborah, thank you so much for coming. Really Hi do there. appreciate it. Um, how long did you spend? Uh, maybe let's start here. Let's set the scene. How long were you in Ukraine for? Well, I've been on and off um, for the past year since yeah. the war began. So there from the beginning up until April, then came out, went back again, May, June, bit of July, then came back. And then I went to South Sudan, which actually is also part of the war yeah. because they have a famine, which is um, caused by climate change, exacerbated by the war. And then now again um, in August and September. What is... What is it like reporting in a conflict? I think it's very, um, it's complicated in many ways. You have, on one level, it's devastating because you're seeing human suffering all the time. Yeah. On another level, you're just so focused on the story and that's all you think about. You live in the present in a way that you don't really do in real life because you have to focus on making sure you're safe and making sure you get the stories out and meeting all the deadlines. And Ukraine has been particularly like that because it's a huge international story. So it's not once every few days that you're mm. on air, you're on air all the time. Um, and so it's a lot of work and a lot of energy when you're in it. There's fear, but the fear is often right at the beginning. You know, we're more scared of what we don't know than when we're actually there. And I'm certainly like that. Mm. Every story that I've covered, if I haven't been to the place or covered it before, I'm always anxious before I go. I remember feeling that when I covered Ebola um, in 2014 for the first time. I'd never covered Ebola before. And it's a different kind of war because the enemy is invisible. And before I went, I was anxious, understandably. Once I was there, I got to see it a bit better. And it's the same with Ukraine. Mm. Once you go... And you understand how to work in the place, it becomes a little bit easier. In the beginning, it was really hard because Kiev was being bombed constantly and was, you know, possibly going to be encircled by Russia, the capital of Ukraine. Um, and that was very terrifying because it was not a war like any we'd seen before. It was not a civil war. This was a war of invasion mm. um, and aggression. And that 
was very different than other wars that we've perhaps covered. I've covered Syria as well and a lot of conflicts in Africa. Um, and this one was unlike any of those. On some levels, all wars are the same because they involve terrible human suffering. But fear is your friend in a war zone because it makes sure that you don't do stupid things <laughs> and that you don't um, move too quickly and that you are cautious. And I am always scared in a war zone, and I think that's a good place to be. You should be. How do you know if you're in too much danger at any certain point and when to retreat? It's, it's a difficult one. You don't always know. And sometimes it suddenly comes upon you, oh, wow, I shouldn't have gone down this corner. I shouldn't have turned down there. Um, but 99% of the time, we plan very, very carefully. You move very slowly. Before you go somewhere, you check, you know, what the situation is in that particular area and yeah. you have a plan. This is where you're going to retreat to if things get difficult. If you get split up, this is where you're going to meet. If, um, you know, something goes very wrong, this is where you're going to take cover. So everything is carefully thought out. You move very slowly and you move into the situation slowly, step by step. We have, a, you know, quite a big team. Um, because we have um, fixers, people who speak the language um, that we're in, in the country, in this case, Ukrainian and Russian. And we have um, drivers. We take two cars always because in case one breaks down, you need another one. Um, so it's, it's, it's a fairly big crew. And we had armored cars in Ukraine. And obviously we have body armor, yeah. which can protect you so far. Yeah. What happens to you psychologically when a journalist is arrested or killed or dies? Um, as sometimes it does happen, right? It wasn't in a war situation, but the death of Jamal Khashoggi in a embassy, for instance. It was such an everyday thing to die in an, uh, you know, to go to an embassy. To die there is not an everyday thing. And it, it makes you scared as a journalist covering the Saudi prince, for instance, right? It, 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 it may even call for you and your family to say, oh, it might be time to step away from this. What happens to you psychologically when, when that happens? Well, I think, you know, you just have to trust your instincts, which get honed over the years, that if something feels wrong and unsafe, it usually is. And even if it isn't, it's a good time to pull back. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I've always tried to guide me. I mean, you, you can still get things wrong. And it doesn't mean that journalists who got killed um, did something wrong or made, yeah. you know, made mistakes. It's bad luck often. And you just never know when that bad luck is going to hit. At the beginning of the war in Ukraine, it was very difficult because a lot of journalists were getting killed at the beginning. And again, it, you know, it was this unknown factor. We hadn't covered a war quite like this before. Um, and so that was horrifying and terrifying and incredibly sad to see journalists um, getting killed. We haven't we, journalists are still getting killed in Ukraine, but not to quite the same extent um, as it was right at the very beginning. And you know, as a war progresses, maybe you learn, you understand a little bit more. Things have changed, and Kiev is a bit safer. Obviously, this week it wasn't yeah. because there was renewed attacks on the capital, um, but you kind of know where where you can not you must remember that in a war not every single inch of every part of the country is necessarily dangerous at the same time 
It's like, you know, when people talk about South Africa and they say, oh, aren't you scared there's crime? Yes, but not every second of every day, yeah. every minute, <laughs> in every place. Yeah. We hope. I guess when you're in Johannesburg CBD and you go 15 minutes north and you find yourself in Parkhurst, it's a different story. And that might be true for a country at war. To an extent, although this was interesting because this is war being fought in suburbs. It's suburban warfare. Tanks in, for example, places that look like Parkhurst. I can't imagine going to Morningside and seeing tanks. And neither could the Ukrainians. War is often defined by torture, rape, murder, pillaging, theft, all sorts of atrocities. Has that shaped your idea of violence, what violence is, what it looks like, how it manifests? You know, for me, I'm interested in war always from the point of view of the people who suffer the most. And wars also share one thing in common, in that it is usually civilians who bear the brunt of any kind of violence and aggression. And that's true of many, many wars. And Ukraine has particularly suffered in that regard, because this is a war that has largely been declared on the civilian population. It is civilians who have been dying. It is civilians who've been raped and who have been the victims of gross human rights atrocities across the country. Um, and, you know, does it shape one's view of violence? It, I think it helps understand because war almost always seems to end up in that kind of way. Yeah. And I'm, it's, it's very hard to find a noble war often. Yeah. And in this particular instance, it's almost been impossible. Um, the level of atrocity that is happening in real time, and I think that's what is unusual about the war in Ukraine, is that we don't always get to see atrocities in real time. As journalists, as the media, we often arrive after it has happened. We hear about it. We're not always in the midst of it sometimes. Sometimes yeah. we are, but not always. And so... You will get, for example, covering Syria, you would arrive after something has happened, you get to interview people. But this was real time and it was being documented in real time. So war crimes would occur and then the war crimes prosecutors would go in and the evidence would still be fresh. There were fresh mass graves, bodies piled on top of each other in places like Butcher, in Izium, in other, in other places that people's, you know, the names are not even known to most people because, as you say, there's a level of desensitization. Um, and that is always the horrifying thing of war, the thing that I am interested and passionate yeah. about as a journalist in covering, how it affects people and often how it affects women. Yeah. I, and, and I do want to speak about how it affects women in particular, because rape is perhaps the most egregious factor um, of war, um, at least certainly in Africa. I, I don't know how uh, prevalent and ubiquitous rape is, for instance, in, in the Ukrainian war. Um, but oftentimes what also is something we don't pay enough attention to is how humanity sometimes flies out the window, right? Even in good meaning exercises. For instance, um, how we bury somebody is, is, a, is a sign of humanity, but discovering a mass grave is, an, is such a visceral and you know, clear moral in, indication of humanity gone out the window. How do you process, for instance, speaking to a rape victim in war versus speaking to a rape victim not in war? How do you, what goes through your mind when you come up on a mass grave site? How do you make the decision on how you choose to cover that story. 
No, I think one doesn't always process it particularly well, certainly not in the moment, because you're focused on gathering, news gathering, getting the story, covering it, making sure you have the visuals, and making sure you do it in as sensitive way as possible so that you don't put graphic images on television that are just superfluous and um, unnecessary, really, um, in order to convey the horror. Yeah. So I think there has to be dignity and death in all situations. Um, and that is something that we, we hold very important. But the story unfolds in front of you. You know, it tells itself almost. It finds you in many, many ways. It's there. It's happening. You report on it. Um, people are coming forward. They're talking about what's happened. Maybe they're coming looking for their loved ones. And you happen to capture those moments. Yeah. And sometimes it's not in the interview. Sometimes it's in the visual. You see somebody sobbing next to a mass grave. And that in and of itself is a story. And our job as journalists is, you know, people talk a lot about objectivity. It's, it's not about half truth and half lies. It's about shining a light. It's about getting behind the official facade. It's about speaking truth to power. And it is about shining a light on injustice. And yeah. that is what our job is as the media in covering pretty much any story, really, but in a war, it becomes even more important. Yeah. War is political and journalism often um, is reported not in absence of different political lenses, right? And certain journalists have a, their own political dispositions, uh, as is the case with editors, as is the case with me- media houses, right? Is there a difference? Is there a vast political difference across um how war is being reported by different media versus what you experience on the ground uh, without necessarily saying this media house or that media house. We'll, we'll continue. That's the question I want Deborah to address after the break. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. It is just about 25 minutes after 10 a.m. You're listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon. I'm in conversation with CBS foreign correspondent Deborah Petter. And we're talking about the Ukraine war. Deborah spent uh, quite a bit of time out in Ukraine on and off and has been reporting on the conflict there. And it's important that we dig deep into the everyday stories of it. Deborah, before we went to the break, I spoke about the political end through which conflict is often being reported on. Um, and if you think back to different wars in different times, uh, depending on where you're watching the war from and who's telling you the war story, it may shape your political understanding of, of the war. But sometimes there's consensus about evil. It doesn't matter where you're listening to it from. Is, is that the case over here? Obviously, with the plausible exclusion of Russia, right? You would diff- get a different story about the war in Russia through Russian state-controlled media. But the world over outside of that, is there a consensus of the evil that is transpiring there? I don't know if the world is in consensus, but they should be because it is evil. And it is incredibly painful and sad to be in the presence of evil and to see such horrific suffering. I have seen mass graves. I have seen civilians executed shot in the back. I have seen civilians with their hands tied um, and shot in the back people who were riding on bicycles and shot. I have seen unbelievable devastation and damage, homes destroyed. And remember, in every single one of those homes, and I've seen thousands that have been destroyed, families lived, people loved, they laughed, they cried, they had dreams and hopes just like me and you. Mm. And those were shattered with a missile or a rocket for a war not of their making. 
I have seen torture on an industrial scale. In Izium, which was recently liberated from Russian occupation, there were 12 torture chambers alone in that region. And I visited some of them, and it was a horror story, an absolute horror story. It seemed that there was a mission to go into these places and torture as many people as possible. Um, so, you know, when one is witnessing these kinds of atrocities, we have to strip behind whatever rhetoric people are talking about yeah. and look at the people who are suffering, who are living in unbelievable pain. Children um, who go to school with bunkers, air raid shelters that they have to run to um, in case there's a bomb attack. For those who are still going to school, yeah. others have been destroyed. They have no schools anymore. Others are living under Russian occupation and now have to go to Russian-controlled schools. Um, children who, I, I interviewed these two young little girls, eight and six, who, who spoke about you know, how they used to hug each other tightly when the bombs came. They were in the line of fire, their little village. They were the only two kids left there, became best friends, and the one whispered to the other, almost oblivious to me at one point, and said, you know, the war's going to end by Christmas obviously repeating oh. some platitude that their parents yeah. had said to them. And those parents have no such certainty. But what do you say to your children? How do you reassure a child? I, I spoke to a young boy who was trapped in an air raid shelter underground for over 100 days um, and had, did not see the light of day. And in the beginning, he used to draw pretty pictures and colors. He liked drawing. At the end, he was drawing monsters and tanks. This is what it's doing to the psyche of children. And this is war everywhere. It's not unnecessarily unique to Ukraine, but Ukraine is the country we are focusing on. And those stories need to be told. That is our job as the media, is to be the voice of the voiceless. It's a privilege, and one has to do it well and with passion and empathy. Yeah. Give us a call, 86 And we're taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. Debra, Debra, Debra. Oh, what a great pleasure of hearing your voice, my sister. Ha, 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 ha. Where have you been hiding yourself? Hey, Debra, we miss you so much, man. Don't you think of coming back and chase like you have chased idiotic uh, corrupt Libby? Come and chase these parliamentaries. They, 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 you see now they don't want to pay electricity and other rates, whereas we are the poorest of the poor in South Africa who are ought to pay all the nonsenses that municipalities is asking for and the stupid idiotic ASCOM who embrace us with the load shading time and again. Deborah, please come, come, come and chase these parliamentarians, man. Hey, 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 we miss you, Deborah. Ha! Huh? It's good to hear your voice, my sister. Keep <laughs> That's beautiful. Half us ten. Let's take your news headlines. Deborah, a story that fascinates me quite a bit uh, in, in in ways that I can't make sense of it. That's why it fascinates me because I haven't seen one except for in the movie The Pianist. Is a mass grave. I've never seen one in my life, and I hope I never get to see one in my life. But talk me through. 
the mass grave stories. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier on seeing a woman weeping next to a mass grave. That's earth-shatteringly sad. Um, and you discovered a mass grave just before, uh, a mass grave was uncovered just before you were supposed to come back to South Africa and you stayed on a little bit longer to cover that. Talk to him about the coverage you did in that instance. Well, um, I had two unfortunate instances, and I hope you never have to see a mass grave. No one should have to have that horror. The first was in Bucha, which was is outside Kiev and suffered horrific human rights abuses and war crimes that are now being investigated. And when we arrived there, um, if you know, this bodies had just been piled up on top of each other in a mass grave, thrown one on top of each other, um, including two children in that particular instance. And it's always the, the everydayness of, of bodies in that situation that catches you. You know, you see someone with their lovely manicure. They've had a manicure maybe just a few days before. You see the hand or you see a child's toy um, or, or a child's little skirt um, or a sneaker, you know, yeah. something that you we would wear, you know, like I'm wearing now to run. Um, in Izium, which was the most recent one that you're referring to, Izium was recently liberated because the Ukrainians have been on a massive counteroffensive and are actually the war is starting to turn in their favor, which is why um, Vladimir Putin has unleashed more missiles and come out sort of he's, he's, he's cornered essentially at the moment because he's losing. The war's not going well. That's why he's having to call up um, young men who most of whom don't seem to want to fight as so many have left the country. And in Izium, what it was was in a forest. It was like a forest of death. Imagine this peaceful pine forest on the outskirts of the city and just hundreds and hundreds of wooden crosses with no names, just numbers, numbered, over 447 bodies. Um, and most of them were civilians, barring 17 Ukrainian soldiers. These were civilians, some, sure, killed in shellings and stuff, others who had been tortured, who had the signs of torture on their body. Each one of those has to be exhumed and investigated. And I cannot begin to tell you what the smell is like. You can't get that smell out of your head. Psychologically, it stays with you. You go to bed at night and you've had a shower, you've changed clothes. And, and you I, smell death. And I kept thinking I'm still smelling the smell of death. I mean, if torture was on an industrial scale, death was on an industrial scale in that forest. And it brings home to you the enormity of the suffering and the scale of the suffering that people are going through. Numbered, numbered bodies, not even given a name um, in a forest, just dumped there. Are there torture chambers? As I said earlier, yes, um, many torture chambers. And I think that this was one of the, the things that um, really hit home at how this war is not about um, anything military. There are no civilian, um, there are no military targets, for example, that were hit really in Izium. In the region of Kharkiv, there were, as I said, 12 torture chambers alone just in that region. And every time you'd go into a new place that had been liberated, the first thing you'd ask was about the torture chamber. In Balakir, which was also liberated as part of this counteroffensive, the torture chamber there was in a police station. 
And at night, the neighbors who lived near the police station said they would hear the screams of the people at night, people who were tortured with electric shock treatment. I interviewed an old man over 70 years old who refused to do a, um, a YouTube. He had a YouTube channel. He used to be a photographer. And he just put things on his YouTube channel, as people do. You yeah. know, he wasn't very famous or anything. And they wanted him to praise Putin and talk about the war in positive terms from Russia's perspective on his YouTube channel. And this brave man refused to do that. He was held in prison for over 100 days and tortured systematically. Electric shock treatment, beatings. Um, they would put masks over people's heads to, I suppose, stop them breathing, terrify them. Um, we saw the instruments of torture that have been left abandoned in these torture chambers. I can't begin to imagine being in torture for a hundred... Nothing about this makes sense. A hundred days of torture. It's an absolute war crime, right? You know, I mean, unfortunately in South Africa, we have a shocking history of apartheid where there will be South Africans listening to this right now who themselves have had that kind of experience. Yeah. But when you are torturing, when you are raping when you are killing civilians in the back, when you are destroying neighborhoods and homes, not military targets, it's a shameful war. It's a war in which um, people are suffering every single day in ways that no one should ever have to suffer. Mm. They should not be suffering in this kind of way. It is, it's, it's difficult to find the words. And I think one of the things about Ukrainians is how brave they are and how steadfast. I keep th imagining what would happen if war came to this country. De Sorry, Deborah, what's, what, what is bravery in war? Um, because I can't imagine, you know, being brave when, when a gun is held to your head to say, put positive messaging on your YouTube channel and you refuse to do that. There's, there's something outside of human that happens in that moment. Um, because I think, yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is that I think we never know if we have principles until they're tested, right? We can say we yeah. have principles, <laughs> but we never know until they're tested. And we'd all like to think we may do that. And we all have different yeah. reactions. And nobody really knows how they're going to respond. But it's the ordinariness of the bravery. The people who go into war-torn areas that are still under occupation or still under constant shelling to take humanitarian aid to help people. It is people who refuse to be bowed, like a 70-year-old man who, you know, no one's going to remember his name yeah. necessarily, but he is doing it because it is the right thing to do. That is, it's, it's also bravery is refusing to leave, like um, Volodymyr Zelensky. You know, I think Russia thought that he would flee the country, but he stayed. He is a wartime president who has risen to the occasion. There were many criticisms of him before the war started. Not everyone voted for him, obviously. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, he rose to the occasion. And I think that that's one of the things that you keep seeing in Ukraine is people standing up. And we know from history that when you are waging an unjust war, when you are perpetuating injustice and you carry on doing it, it doesn't cripple people. It often makes them more strong yeah uh, you know the geneva convention for instance outlaws the desecration of religious sites during time of war um you know it, it for instance outlaws targeting hospitals and schools uh during times of war because those are the things that make up communities 
um, and the remnants of that is what people build back upon. How do communities in Ukraine pull together when the community, when the town, the entire city is being shelled um, and being attacked? Is there a sense of community that you can identify in that moment? I think there is. I mean, a lot of the times people flee. Um, so, you know, in many of these places, they would have evacuated, if possible, as soon as they could, particularly when the shelling gets quite intense, um, which is why, you know, when Russia had its sham elections in part of Ukraine, I mean, yeah. half the, no, I'd say 90% of people had actually fled um, to begin with. So um, a lot of people go away, but then many people go into underground shelters, and there were many beautiful stories of people helping each other people developing communities maybe in your apartment block you went to the basement and that was your air raid shelter throughout the bombing and you stayed there people would bring their beds down and eventually stay there what i was uh, astounded by was how people managed to get food still in those areas you know you never think about things like this how do those things continue electricity was taken out although i think we still have more power outages than Ukraine um, <laughs> in South Africa. Um, I mean, we're a country at war b- with itself. In different ways. Um, but I think that, um, you know, one of the things that, that what you would see is that people would rally around. So like in Butcher, which was destroyed with shelling, um, now people are involved in cleanup operations. People who have no relation to the town whatsoever, who've just volunteered to come and help. Um, and and that is something that you're seeing, I think, is a, a spirit of defiance um, of because people are fighting for something. Mm. They have a purpose, they have a passion, and they have meaning in their lives, which I'm not sure the same can be said of Vladimir Putin's men. Mm. And I interviewed a soldier who um, was a Russian soldier and defected and left. Um, and he said, we didn't even know what we were going to fight. We thought we were going to fight NATO. And then we saw they were only Ukrainians. There was a young man who shot up a recruitment officer, a, a, a Russian young man shooting up a Russian recruitment officer as Putin was trying to conscript 300,000 young men. Um, there seems to be an idea permeating through Russia now, at least, that this is an unjust, uh, morally bankrupt war. Um, but the Russian soldiers in Ukraine are staying. Um, clearly, that's how the war sustains. What do they think now this is about In now that they discovered, oh, we got you thinking we're fighting NATO, now we're not? Well, it's hard to know because you don't often get to speak to, to Russian soldiers. It's very difficult. These are the professional soldiers who are in the country right now. The people who are being called up have never, they may have had some military training, but most of them have never actually fought yeah. in a war. And they are not doing particularly well. And there is a lack, um, it's, they are demoralized. Um, we visited a Russian base that had been abandoned by Russian troops. And it was like, a museum of panic. People just fled in terror, the Russian soldiers. They didn't even stay to fight. Um, there was food still like on the stove. There was uh, the poker game that they'd been playing. It was just abandoned. They were taken by surprise, and they just ran, um, not staying on to fight. I'm not sure there's widespread um, belief in Russia that this is an immoral, bankrupt war. Um, but I think there is... There are people, now that the war has been brought home, that they're being called up to fight, who are saying, um, we, we don't want to go and kill Ukrainians. Yeah. 
Yeah. Let's take a look at some of your WhatsApp voice notes that's come through on the WhatsApp line. Hello, Oliver. Good morning. Could you ask Deborah there if it's the only Ukrainian civilians who suffered the most? Could you ask her about the other side if the Russian civilians suffered? I just want to know the, about the Russian civilians suffering. Kunkwali, Kukumbu. I guess the war would have to be in Russia for that to happen. Well, which is that's not my the case. point. This Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. It is a war of aggression. They invaded, and the Ukrainians are not fighting Russians in Russia. So, no, you Russian civilians are not being affected. At least not in terms of violence. Yeah. yeah. Um, hi. Um, could you please ask Debra for me? Um, what would she say, you know, to those, um, especially South Africans, who um, who are glorifying Russia, you know, saying Russia is, um, is is doing what it should do, you know, Ukraine is formerly Russia, you know, the geopolitics of the area. What would she say to to those people about Russia and what Russia is doing? That's a very beautiful question uh, because it, it, it also comes down from the position of the ANC in South Africa, at least saying, this, mediate this out, right? And there's clearly no opportunity to do that or um, South Africans saying, and not just South Africans, people around the world saying, mm, this is too complex for me to take a position on. What would you say to such people? It's not complex. Right is right. Imperialism is wrong wherever it comes from. And that is the case in this particular instance. And um, South Africa is definitely on the wrong side of history here. And South Africa should know better. We are a country that is born from a human rights background. Apartheid happened because there was pressure placed on the apartheid government. It ended, rather, because of the pressure forcing the apartheid government to negotiations. The two are not mutually exclusive. Mm. You can negotiate or move towards negotiation, but you need to put pressure to get people to that negotiation table. Turkey is not neutral in this war. They have voted against Russia, and they have emerged as the biggest mediator in this war. So, you know, for South Africa to say that's why it's neutral, I'm afraid isn't wrong. Let's remember Archbishop Tutu's famous, famous comment. When an elephant is standing on the tail of a mouse, I do not think the mouse is going to appreciate your neutrality. Zero eight six triple zero two zero three two. That is incredibly apt. Let's take some of your calls. Lauren in Cape Town. Good morning. Good morning, SSM. I'm so pleased that you have somebody on that's covering the war in Ukraine in more detail. I have been absolutely disappointed that we are so silent. And so it's, um, I think it's either day 282 or 283 of this war. And just to echo what Deborah was saying right now, our neutrality, there's no such thing as neutrality in war. Mm. And then also the official South African position. What the track record actually shows is that we have consistently been voting in the United Nations, even before the Ukrainian war, against helping countries that are going through gross human rights violations. And so this thing about not standing with people in terms of justice, in terms of human rights, in terms of democracy, is something that's sticking with me very strongly for the future of SA. Do you yeah. want it? Yeah. And so uh, also given that we, we are countries that can give so much 
And so even though we haven't experienced the, 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 the grossness of the atrocities, we, we can offer the Ukrainians so much. And yes, I know, let's pause, we have state capture, we have our own problems. We are even, even our unemployment rate and Ukrainian unemployment rate is actually similar, 35 point something. But what I want to say so to South Africans, you can fight and be passionate about SA right now and our crises. And mm. you can still support Ukrainians. Mm. Just don't be so silent. And you don't need to take a political position. Support them in terms of their needs, the human rights, the, the food, the clothing. You can start there. Support them in prayer. But there are so many people. Uh, there's a Ukrainian association of SA also. But just stop being silent about... I've, I've cried so many days. If you can name any... Comrade, let's take Hector Peterson. I'm colored. I'll take Ashley Creel in Cape Town. There's been Ashley Creel and Hector Peterson's multiply a thousand that is in this Ukrainian war. When you look at the faces of the young men and women that are being killed, you know where I'm at. Mm. We made a noise during the struggle years when we had one massacre. Um, please, I'm not trying to say ours wasn't bad. But what I'm trying to say is we called so much on international community, international support. Yeah. If you, there's the sport boycott, there's the culture. There are just so many things that we can say and do right now. We do, if you, you, you don't, ugh, there's just multiple yeah. opportunities for us to support the Ukrainian in an aggressive war. And yes, we can have the other debates later. Yeah. But right now, during war, just don't be silent. And just also say to the SA government, your current position on neutrality, your so-called neutrality, is harmful towards the Ukrainians. Laura, and thank so I'm just so pleased about her coming in this morning. Yeah. <laughs> just please. Thank you. Thank you so much for your call, Lauren. Yeah. Really, really do appreciate it. Mike in Middleburg. Yeah, no, th- thanks, Oliver, and your guest. Yeah, Oliver... Uh, we are we are glad that uh, Deborah is, uh, you know, exposing the picture that is so obscured, the vulnerability of um, of ordinary citizens over there, and uh, unfortunately, this war seemingly does not end in sight uh, because of a uh, stupid arrogance, you know, of NATO. Uh, I think we must look at it within the context of what NATO has done over a period of time in the Middle East uh, and, and, and everywhere else in the world, as well as uh, in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine. Because each time they meet, unfortunately, you know, they will take a very stupid decision of uh, escalating matters instead of uh, trying to get, a, you know, a, a, a credible mediator instead of uh, supporting that they will tell you that um, they will uh, you know add more weapons and uh, that is not helping the situation so in my view we must actually lay the blame right at the doorstep of this arrogant nato we are where we are because of nato and uh, going forward we will never get a solution if nato continues with this kind of arrogance. That Mike, is my take. Mike, thank you so much for your call. Really, really do appreciate it. Deborah, that comes up a lot. How credible is 
Putin's claim about NATO aggression towards Russia, saying that they're circling uh, the, the, the borderline of Russia uh, with the real uh, intention uh, of, of, you know, defeating Russia. Um, how credible is, is that pretext for upon which Putin entered this war? Well, the other pretext was that he was going to rid Ukraine of Nazism, which is almost laughable because there's very little evidence of anything like that at all. Um, you know, it's a complicated issue to get into. But I, w I think the thing to say is that one can hold two things at once in one's mind. Yeah. One can have one's views about NATO. If one is critical about what they've done or not, you can have a view. And you can also condemn the suffering that is happening and the war that is happening. At the end of the day, Russia invaded Ukraine. At yeah. the end of the day, it is Russian missiles, Russian rockets, raining down on mostly civilians in Ukraine. Yeah. The NATO conversation became secondary when the Nazism pretext started failing, right? And what preceded even the Nazism pretext was that's that's Russian territory. We just came to claim what is ours. Um, and then the referendum, the bogus referendum happened. I don't know if there was an actual outcomes in that referendum that anyone took serious. Well, some of them uh, were in the 90% or something. I mean, if you're going to you know, fudge your results. Um, try yeah. maybe to make it a little less obvious. <laughs> yeah, so Putin's reason for war is ever-changing, it seems. Um, but they did claim some territory, and they lost some territory back to Ukraine. U re Ukraine reclaimed some of their territory. I got a tweet here from somebody that says, uh, Deborah cannot really believe that Zelensky is in Ukraine. Why would he need green screens to have a movie like background scenes created by Hollywood. Come on now. I've uh, interviewed but you, him but twice. You've interviewed, uh, uh, you know, Zelensky. Yeah. You've Once seen him in the flesh. Once on a bridge in Izium, um, where he went to a newly liberated Izium at considerable personal danger because there was still shelling going on in that area um, to visit what the Ukrainians had taken back and the second time in his presidential bunker. Um, I'm not sure where people get their information from, um, but there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And I think one also has to ask questions, critical questions, that just because one has been allies of a country long ago, it doesn't mean they are incapable of doing wrong things now. Mm. And if you look at Russia's history at the moment on this continent of Africa um, and the role of, for example, Wagner mercenaries, Russian mercenaries in African countries, there are a lot of questions to be asked, and the answers are not going to be things that some people like. Um, and we've seen what the Wagner mercenaries are doing in Ukraine as well, what they've done in Kar, what they've done elsewhere on this continent. It is an ugly picture. Um, so there's, you know, as I said, it's a complicated issue with many, many views on many sides. Yeah. But at the core of it, one has to try and understand who's hurting. Yeah. And it's a humanitarian crisis. Give us that call. Let's take a few more calls, actually. Richard in East London. Good morning. Hi, Oliver. Go ahead, Oliver. sir. What's on your mind? And Oliver, firstly, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm squarely blaming uh, uh, Western countries and NATO here. One, they have taken, at the beginning of the war, they took out the alternative media, the Al Jazeera's of this world and others. So that the narrative that comes out of there with Deborah now, we would be fed one narrative. That's one. We should acknowledge that these negotiations were there before the war started. And it is NATO 
and, and, and Zelensky that started the war. Because nobody, for us and yourself, uh, understanding the tension between the Western world and the East, that is Russia in this context, that Russia should allow and would allow NATO right at the next door to them with all the capabilities that they yeah. have militarily. Just a quick question I have, Richard. Uh, when last mm. have you watched Al Jazeera? No, no, I've, I've not watched it. I've not watched it. So how do you know that they've been removed from covering the no. war? Like you know what I did? You, you yeah. know what I did? You, you know, know what so I did? At the point I'm trying to make is this. Al Jazeera is covering the war extensively. No, no, no. DSTV cut off. No, Al Jazeera is on DSTV right now. You're talking about Russia Today, which is state-owned media that, through the sanctions, was unable to transmit. No, no. Look, they, they, I'm telling you, when I switched off my DSTV, Al Jazeera was not there. Uh, if you go back, you'll, you I promise you, if you go back to Al DSTV right now, Al Jazeera no, is they, definitely they there. Have, but they, they may have resuscitated it because they are losing their heading on their own. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe multi-choice changed your prescription, your, your subscription uh, model there. But thank you so much for your call, Eunice, uh, uh, Richard. Eunice in Johannesburg, good morning. Hi there, Oliver. Oliver, look, nothing good comes of war. War is bad. The question is simple. You know, not taking any sides there, but would the Americans allow a Russian base in Cuba or in Venezuela? I mean, if the Russians had to go there, what would the Americans do and what would NATO do? Now, having said that, my question to Deborah is, during the stay that I'd like to know if she interviewed people because the blatant racism, what we saw from the Ukrainians when the war started, you know, African students, students from the subcontinent, including South Africans who were discriminated against on the basis of their color, thrown off trains, etc., etc. What was did you, in the yeah. interviews, did you come across anything like that? What, what did the people have to say? Thanks. Beautiful question. At the start, Deborah, the reportage on black people existing in Ukraine was incredibly racialized and racist. Um, what was your experience around that? Uh, it's inexcusable. I mean, the racism is inexcusable. Yeah. It's very, very simple. And um, the way that people were dealt with who were fleeing the country was inexcusable. Um, but... That is not about the war overall. It is about incidences of racism which were wrong. Yeah. That doesn't make other things right. Yeah. Final call from Scully in KZN. Good morning. Good morning to you, Oliver. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Very, very briefly, in 30 seconds, what's your question? Okay, why is not the, the world, you know, the United Nations, NATO and whoever can't stop this war? You know, it's no time for war now. Yeah. As you say, cut it short. I cut it short. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kali. Appreciate it. Deborah, maybe as we close off, wh what are some things you think we need to know about this war that we perhaps do not take serious, that we take for granted, uh, that will shape how we feel about it and how we see it? I think we have to step from um, outside our ideologies and our past history and our past perspective and ask a very simple question. Is what is happening to the people of Ukraine justified and right? And I don't think that anyone could answer that it is. Even our own government has, has you know, condemned the atrocities there. Um, and that is the place that one has to start from, to look at the people, to really understand what is happening to them and how they are being um, treated, how they are being abused, tortured, killed in their own homes. And then... From there, one can have a conversation.
Yeah. Deborah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your journalism, your bravery, um, and your incredibly beautiful insights on the show today. Really, really do appreciate it. It is 11 o'clock. Time for your news.